All right. Well, welcome to another Consults Over Coffee. I'm Dr. Michael Jones, and I am joined today by Dr. David Ring, who's actually an MD, PhD. And you are the Associate Dean for Comprehensive Care and Professor of Surgery and Psychiatry at the Dell Medical School, which is part of UT Austin. Is that, do I have yeah. that correct? Yep. UT Austin finally has a medical school. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, I got pointed in your direction because we we're talking a little bit about narrative medicine. And, and I was, I was intrigued by the idea of an orthopedic surgeon with, as, as I mentioned before, that wanting to trot out a trope, an orthopedic surgeon who's actually interested in the psychosocial aspects of, of care. Yeah. And that's how we connected us is that she was also you know, struck by that when I met her when she came to UT Austin. Well, you know, it, it, it really, it is, as an athlete who's been injured seriously before, I certainly know my recovery process very often, a, a lot of, of my ability to function or to come back wasn't really my physiology or my anatomy. It was my head at that point. Is, is this going to be okay? Is this pain the fact that something's wrong, or is it just part of the rehab process? So, and and I think maybe that's that's a great place to start is the, is the idea of, of, I think a lot of people in the community have a sense of pain. If I have 10 out of 10 pain in my knee, there must be 10 out of 10 wrong in my knee. Right. And the processing of pain is complex. And maybe that's a good place to, yeah. to start. It's a, yeah, and we can make it symptoms but pain pain is certainly wired to go to the prepare for the worst part of our brain for sure but but symptoms like tingling or fatigue or nausea itching um so what what i say is to to try to make sense of what you're talking about is <clears throat> people don't seek care for a symptom if you just you know, monitor your symptoms over the, over the day. You'll have plenty of symptoms and notice when you have one that's like, oh, my back's sore or my knee's sore. And you don't immediately seek care because you're like, sometimes it just goes away on its own. Or maybe I'm getting old and I can, I'm, I can manage. So you don't, it's not a symptom that leads you to seek care. It's a symptom that becomes a concern. It's when you have, and, and when you have a concern, the first thing you do is Google it. <laughs> nowadays and then google makes you more concerned because there's not good information there and, and then now you're more concerned so you're probably going to go go to go seek seek care um and then what it turns out so what it, and then us as clinicians so i'll say hi i'm dr ring how can i help you today and people start talking about their issue it's not usually like uh well hurts right here when i do this like very specific descriptions, they usually lead with their, their thinking about what's going on, their interpretation. So they, they don't tell me about the symptom, they tell me about the interpretation of the symptom. They'll say, I overdid it at work. You know, I, I, it was that time I jammed it a month ago. They'll, they'll lead with the interpretation of the symptom, which usually has an underlying misconception and something that's worse than the truth. It's, it's usually worst case thinking and making them feel worse. So for me in my field, um, one of the big things that comes up in musculoskeletal is somebody will come in and they'll say, I injured my shoulder. 
and then you listen to them and they start describing rotator cuff tendinopathy. It's like, so I'm gonna have to gently guide you from the mindset of injured to old. And, and, and you know, that, yeah, you laugh because it's brutal, right? People don't want that journey. They don't want, they'd rather be injured, fix it, put me back. But that is the, and then that's now you know why I'm interested in narrative medicine because there's the part where the person needs to, you know, be able to tell their story and live their story and think their story and be comfortable with getting old. And there's a part where I need to not force them to live it too fast. And I have to, I have, to have compassion in how I deliver the, my expertise because it's not what they're thinking. Now, and I think I, I, when I was teaching, I was, I was, thought I would say to folks, you know, when you walk into a room with someone, one of the first questions you ask them in one form or another is, is, well, how do you feel? And and I would say to people, we are immediately into the realm of the subjective with that question. And 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 that's I think we've 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 promoted an idea of medicine as as hard science and a lot of data and great technology and wonderful molecular biology and all these things. But when you're sitting in a room face to face with someone, it's a subjective experience. You know, I think it's actually, you know, it's 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 strange but true that doctors, medical students, doctors, you know, in science-based professions, some of the most highly educated people in our society need to be reminded that symptoms are subjective, like they, by definition. You, you know, so for instance, in scientific writing or discussions about pain, people will say perceived pain or pain perception. That makes no sense. Pain is always perceived. <laughs> pain is by definition perceived. That's what pain is. And what they're lacking is the, is the word nociception, which is physiology of actual or potential tissue damage. Like you were saying, 10 out of 10 knee pain should be 10 out of 10 pathology or nociception. But you know it doesn't correlate. You can have somebody with a terrible looking knee who's not even seeing a doctor. And you can have somebody with mild knee arthritis who's you know, miserable and wants you to need, like, give me a knee replacement. And, and that's what I think you were describing before we started the, the recording, how you had kind of discovered that in your field, that you were working on all these objective measures, but the objective measures really didn't help you much. And when you learned about people's experience with their symptoms, that's where the money was. It was misinterpretation, worry, and and despair. And that's true uh, in musculoskeletal as, as, as well, that people always think it'll be the next MRI or the next, it's not, it, you know, that just shows you more detailed pathology that, that people deal, uh, they, they find a way to accommodate better or worse. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's, it, it, again, symptoms, symptoms have meaning for people. I mean, you alluded, you mentioned the fact that folks come in because they're scared. And that exists in the gastroenterology literature as well. It, with, with abdominal complaints, the, the frequency of the complaints and, and often the severity is not necessarily worse than in the general population, but the folks who seek care are certainly more concerned about the symptoms. 
yeah what they, we, we see what they may represent and 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 also and and also they they tend to have differences in coping styles compared to non-consultors you know i i musculoskeletal is a is a is a playground for this because so much of it is discretionary in, in quality of life um and the what I, it, I feel, I found, I feel like I discovered quite a few things that could apply across medicine, and that's kind of how I ended up coming into this associate dean role. And one of the, I, it's been a little bit hard to get everybody excited about it, but one person who I did get excited about is a GI surgeon. So he does heartburn surgeries, reflex surgeries, and um, he's all over it. He, you know, they've been measuring. Uh, anxiety related to reflux routinely in some industry funded trials. Um, and one of the reasons he told me was just, there's this thing that they put on this sort of magnetic uh, ring that goes around the, the, the links, the little yeah. magnetic beads. Yeah. And he's like, he, he'll have people he puts that in and just the idea that the thing is in there, like, you got to get this out, you know? So it's, that's why they care about this. Um, and what they, what the data are showing so far is is the typical worry makes symptoms worse absolutely and that's the thing so if you're if you're worried or, or despairing or hopeless everything you know we know that we all know that you, you you're any problem you have in your body it affects you more when you're down when you're worried when you're feeling less hopeful that's just sort of common sense but it's the elephant in the room we don't talk about it now they've, they've looked at some of the sort of post-operative data and they see that the anxiety goes way down which makes sense Fewer symptoms, fewer worries. So it's really the interaction. Like the whole chicken and egg thing to me is, is a useless discussion. It's when somebody comes to you with reflux, that's a miserable symptom. I know that symptom. I don't want that symptom. And when they come to you with worry, that's also awful. And when they come to you with both, that's synergistically worse. But the point is you don't just treat the reflux. You treat the reflux and the anxiety. Yeah. Well, and I think I think yeah, they were sort of schooled in this in this linear model of of pathology that there's some sort of insult that results in pathophysiology. The biomedical model. Yeah, and a lot of these a lot of these problems are are really they're not linear; they're they're circular, and and they acquire a life of their own after a while because they intercalate themselves into all aspects of the patient's life, but also into the lives of the people in their family and in, in their community, the people that they interact with. So these, they, they become, they become complex and you're right. Just fixing one aspect of that or addressing one aspect of that doesn't, it only gets you, but so far. So certainly one of the things that, that we started to do was actually to have a, a more formal biopsychosocial assessment in working these folks up where we did, you know, they had their CAT scans, they had their endoscopies, they had their manometries, they had all these things done. But then we also started to actually, you know, we had health psychologists in the clinic. Well, that's great. And, and we also started to do as part of our clinical trials or, and our assessment, but also as, as just to learn was, was to do standardized measures of, anxiety, generalized anxiety, health specific anxiety, coping strategies, I mean, to start to look at those things, and then kind of say, well, you know what, your endoscopy looked okay, your gastric emptying test was okay. You know, all this was okay. But man, you, you kind of rang the bell on the hospital anxiety and depression scale here. 
what do you think about that? How, how does that, what's your take? And, and you start to kind of steer, steer things in a direction that allows you to make interventions that improve the quality of people's lives. When you, when you say that, I'm sure, I hope people listening to this understand that that's a crafted communication strategy. And there may have been other things that didn't work before, but you're sort of, you filled this out. I took a look. I noticed you're, you're not doing as well as you'd probably like to be doing here. But what's there? You just open it up and you're like, knock on the door. Hey, let's talk about it. You know, because one of the difficult things is people are not seeing, they're not seeing a, a gastroenterologist for abdominal pain. They're not seeing a orthopedic surgeon for shoulder pain or back pain or knee pain um, to talk about anxiety or depression. <clears throat> a lot, and even though that's often the priority. And, you know, it's a somatic focus. The pain is the somatic focus for their despair. Uh, that can be true, but they're seeing the orthopedic surgeon or the gastroenterologist rather than the primary care actor or psychologist or psychiatrist because they're not really ready for that. They're not really right. And so, but what we found, so the way this manifests, I, I've had similar setups as you. When I was in Boston, I had a psychologist in my office with me. In, in Austin, I have a social worker. But that's not, that sounds like, oh, problem solved. Not even, it's just getting started. So we give out, routinely give out depression screen and anxiety screen. And it's well-documented in orthopedics uh, in institutions that routinely give these out that people don't always answer them honestly. So the, the, for instance, the PROMISE questionnaires, which is NIH funded um, computer adaptive tests. We mostly use those now when we can you'll see this nice Gaussian curve, which you should see of symptoms of depression or anxiety. Then you see this big spike at the bottom. And you can also measure the time that people took in filling it out. And they're just going, no, 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 no. They're going through really quick saying, don't go there. Don't go there. Yeah. So there's a whole bunch of people saying, don't go there. And then, so you're not going to necessarily capture all the mental health opportunities by using screening questioning. And then once you do see somebody screening, if somebody fills it out honestly, then they, they probably want to talk about it. So you can gently open the door like you were describing. And then if you have somebody in the, in the office to help, that's useful because mental health is so deprioritized in our society that if you try to refer somebody, good luck. Like, first of all, you got to find somebody who knows how to do stuff like, you know, somatic focus, catastrophic thinking. Um, so mis, mis, misinterpretation of symptoms and somatization of distress, if you, we don't have a lot of experts in that. And when you find one, they'll probably have a three month, four month waiting list. Yeah. And, it, and nobody wants to pay for mental health. So, you know, it, it's not, it's, and we would screen people in and then have the social worker come in. Um, and sometimes that, you know, relationship, we didn't do the setup well. So it's really delicate, really a lot of steps to get right there. That's, I think that's the true art of medicine, right? Is, is, how you interact with people and, and how you forge those relationships and, and sort of knowing when and how to broach certain topics. That's the key. It's all about the relationship. Yeah. And, and that's, which is actually the best part of the job. If you, if you lean into the relationship, you like your job better, even when you hit up against the limits of modern medicine or, you know, the person you're talking with has a block to seeing some of the important health opportunities for them. That all could be true, but as long as you just, you know, enjoying the person's story and 
taking a genuine interest in people, you're gonna you're not gonna burn out. No, I don't think you are. And I think I think there's there's some healing value for people and just feeling like they've been heard. That there actually, is. Yeah, that they're talking to someone who's generally interested in how they're doing and, and wants to help. Because well, that's the idea behind narrative medicine. And you know, the you in my field, you hear I'm a hand specialist, so uh, we have hand therapists, for, you know, certified hand therapists. And in my field, you hear surgeons on the podium or on academic settings saying, I uh, thank God for my hand therapist. My hand therapist takes care of these issues. And that's kind of sad because what it means is um, right when the relationship building moment comes for the hand surgeon or something's about to go a little deeper or something, something's getting complex. They just say hand therapy. But what happens in hand therapy is they're doing some things. There's a lot of, there's a variety of things they may do, but while they're doing them, they're spending a lot of time. Absolutely. And they're spending a lot of time, you know, maybe more than once a week. And then you're gaining the person's trust and they start to tell you their story. And I think that there should be a CPT code for that because, or an EM code for that, because that telling the story is probably the most important thing going on in hand therapy, in the hand therapy session. And I, for me, when I've, um, I'll meet people who have been through a difficult health experience in this, not, I say difficult care experience. So, I mentioned the person who with shoulder pain who feels injured, where it's not an injury, it's just aging of the shoulder. And you'll meet somebody who has a work claim and has been really bounced around and just treated inhumanly. Um, and they, I, get, I meet them nine months later and they just kind of tell me their story of injustice. And it's true. And they, they're right. It is there. They have experienced injustice and there's no way around them. They have to tell that story and I have to listen and I have to show interest and I am interested. It takes a lot longer. It's going to be a longer visit because it's often a long story. And I always think I wish I'd met that person in nine days or nine weeks rather than nine years. Then there's another aspect to this, which I want to get out there um, in addition to uh, telling your story. Uh, and there, there, there's actually some evidence in, in I don't know how much evidence there is around narrative medicine. I think that's still a growing area of evidence, but there's a lot of evidence around writing about what you're going through. Oh, and journaling, yeah. Yeah, I was yeah. I got interested in that. I got interested in that when I was in Boston. And I, what, the way I got interested in it was that the, uh, the trauma care network, which is done by the American College of Surgeons, it's, it's a site for, website for patients to go to, who, you know, if you got in a car wreck and you were, injured really bad and there's all these patient stories so you can when you're an injured when you have you're, when you're injured you think i'm screwed you know and it's just you don't see any way out and so being able to read stories of people that felt just like you and then a year later they're back to their roles is really inspiring and i think it's healing so i i, I started collecting stories that was starting to randomize trial just before i left and having some people journal and others not i wanted to get their stories to share with other people but I also thought maybe writing it down would be healthy. Then fast forward, you know, I get to Austin and I start meeting people, meeting people. I meet this guy named Jamie Pennybaker. And I, Jamie he Penny did a language analysis program. Is Jamie, that that's what he does now. Like right. If you look at what Jake, so Jamie's always like 10 or 20 years ahead of the rest of us. Um, so I was like, 
he's been doing writing for healing since the 80s and yes. 90s. Yes. <laughs> and there's like thousands of research papers on it. So the key aspects are 15 minutes a day, write about the emotions of what you're going through. Not the, not, the, not the specifics, the emotions. So if you write about the emotions of whatever illness you're going through 15 minutes a day, solid evidence that that helps you feel better. That's so funny. Yeah, we I actually used his language analysis program for a while. We were doing some pilot research, just having people journal and then sort of looking at how the language of their journaling correlated with their symptoms, their improvement, and also other psychosocial aspects. Is, were these clues to psychosocial aspects that we weren't picking up on? Yeah, and I think, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a, I've been interested in natural language processing for a while, and it's getting more accessible, and his, his program is getting more sophisticated. I've considered it a form of natural language processing. One of the things we did using Jamie's program was we took, because patient experience measures have very high ceiling effects. In other words, you get that Yelp effect where you get the five, 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 five. 10 10 so you you're not learning people are giving you really good scores when you probably could improve and people are giving you bad scores when you're probably okay you need that gaussian curve to really learn and and and, and so we're not getting it in satisfaction measures and recommendation measures and communication so what we did was we took all the verbatim comments all the text comments we got in our little survey in our office and put those um through luke which is the, the liwc is the name of james program and we were able to generate a score and get a Gaussian curve. And it was also able to do thematic analysis that you could see like what people with low scores were experiencing. And it was always the lack of relationship. It's all, it's all about the relationship. So people that have the low scores feel like we don't care about them, feel like we're not interested in them, feel brushed aside. And, and that's, you know, so I think that's a very powerful way to uh, get be get past that gaming of the numerical questionnaire just ask people hey how do we do what can we do better or how are you doing what do you need and then just take that and analyze it and it'll probably be a roadmap to health that's really good that's really and i i i really like the idea of journaling for for folks certainly in the medical setting but in life in general i think there's a lot of value in identifying and working through issues in our lives and, and gaining some insight and gaining some relief. Yeah. A lot of times. Yeah. And, and it's, it's cheap. You need a, a pencil and a piece of paper and you're, you're good to go in a little time and, and a little bit every day works, works pretty well. Yeah. That makes me think of something we were chatting about just before we started recording. And that is um, how to get, the things we've been talking about so far are um, not new. So, you know, that's the Jamie Penny Baker experience. Like, oh, I think I've got this new idea. Now he's been writing about a book. He's written three books about it when you were in high school. You know, so it's, <laughs> so yeah. it's this, this gets into the sort of implementation science. So why are we not, what are the barriers that are keeping us from doing what is experimentally validated as helpful. And, and you start to, to get into that and you think about, it, it basically has to do with the way the human mind works ultimately is, is how it defaults. So a lot of the misinterpretation of symptoms are, are these protective defaults, worst case thinking, fear of painful movement, 
Um, and then there's also other defaults that we have, like the fundamental attribution error. If somebody says something mean, they are mean. They're, you know, these are basically cognitive biases, systematic uh, defaults that, that or shortcuts that are mined. And I think that's why things move so slowly is because we, we aren't as thoughtful and aware about how our mind works as we could be, and we're not using our debiasing strategies. So what, what I, a point that I was thinking is, one of the things that's starting to change is an example could be shared decision-making. So let's say you've got somebody with um, abdominal pain and no, no, no concerning pathology, nothing clear that you can do uh, to address any specific discrete pathology. And you're trying to help them uh, see all their opportunities for getting and staying healthy. And you're going to enter into some essentially shared decision-making about which direction to take, like what should we call this? Um, what, what tests should we do or not do? What treatment should we do or not do? And so shared decision-making has been around a while. Patient-centered care has been around a while. But, and, and what happens is most clinicians say, I'm really good at that. You know, I talk to my patients, I share the decision. And then if you observe them, it turns out they're really bad at that. And they don't even really understand what shared decision making is. So what's changed uh, in the last five or 10 years is to flip it and try to make it a little more compelling by framing it in the words of quality and safety. So for instance, shared decision-making now becomes an error in diagnosis, a misdiagnosis specifically a misdiagnosis of the patient's true preferences based on their values or what matters most to them. So for instance, if somebody comes to me and says, I've got this ganglion cyst on my wrist and you need to take it out. So, okay, let's hear your story. So then the story ends up being, I've got all these symptoms in my arm, none of which are related to the ganglion cyst. And I can't imagine being myself with, if I have still have these symptoms, which is a common cognitive error, is I need to be symptom-free to be myself. That's not true. We all have symptoms, we all have illnesses, we have injuries, and you can adjust and you can accommodate. It's a common cognitive error. And, um, and it'll be as simple as taking this out and it will solve all those symptoms. Another, you know, it's, it's common sense to look and think that that bump might be causing all that, but it's not. So you've if I allow that patient, if I say, sure, I'll sign you up, do the ganglion excision, I have just misdiagnosed their uh, true preferences based on their values, and I've harmed them by doing so. And when I hear you talking about journaling, the thing that journaling does for us, it makes us aware of what we're experiencing and can go a level deeper. And then it really makes us aware of what matters most to us. Because we all have that, but we don't think about it routinely. You don't, you don't think about what matters most to you. And even when you're in crisis, you tend to default to, I can solve this, I can solve this, I can solve it. But the way you solve it will be based on some foundational principles about what is important to you in life. And most people, just to finish off this line of thinking, I, would, I think it's fair to say most people have a base value of avoiding knives slicing into their skin <laughs> it's As funny, a friend of mine, it's funny. Like, don't don't get your spacesuit punctured <laughs> yeah but i mean it's it's so surgeons get drawn into this like when you tell them that everyone has a base value of not wanting to be injured including surgical injury 
they're like, they're, they're just taking it back. Like surgery is good. No, surgery is controlled harm. That is what it is. It's strategic controlled harm and we don't always have complete control. And in the fact that we were able to forget that is an example of what I'm talking about. It's a quality and safety measure. Well, that it's probably a, a good place for us to stop. I think, I guess, broad points. First off, obviously, anybody who has you as a physician is fortunate. And, That's and very nice of you to say. No, but I think it's true. And, and the reality is, is that we, as physicians and as patients, get our best outcomes when we are in a relationship with physicians or healthcare providers um, who, who clearly want to form that relationship and the quality of that relationship in, helps us with the quality of the story that we get. And the money's always in the story and the outcomes are, are, are based on how, how true the story is and how much. Uh, you, what you're saying, it's been called relationship based medicine, <laughs> but uh my daughter put it well. Uh, my daughter's migraine headaches and anxiety. I've seen a lot of doctors and have trouble getting well and getting healthy. And um, one time we were talking and she said, if I really believed that my doctor would be just as excited or happy or, you know, just enjoy the success of my health as much as I do, then I would be so motivated to, uh, to do everything that I need to do. And I think that's it. I mean, if people want to know that we are going to celebrate their health. Yeah. And that's, that's, and that's, you know what, that's a great goal, celebrating health. So this has been another consults over coffee. I'm Dr. Michael Jones, and this is Dr. David Ring, and we'll be back next week.